Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fresh Tech Fridays, brand new fresh episode with your host, Tom Gilsonen. My very special guest today is Andres Rodriguez from Misuni Corporation. He currently serves as their chief technology officer and is also their founder. Very interesting guy with an incredible background, including holding CTO positions at Hitachi Data Systems and the New York Times. So without further ado, um, let's get right into it. My very prestigious and special guest today is Andres Rodriguez, founder and CTO of Nasuni Corporation. Nasuni is a cloud storage product that we'll learn a little bit more about later. And he's got quite a storied past. Um, he looks like has worked for a company that was acquired by Hitachi that made the HCP platform um, and also did a stint at the New York Times before uh, his current founding position. So, Andres, I think you started uh, at Nasuni in like 2009. So before we get into that, tell me a little bit about, you know, where did you grow up? How did you get into tech? And uh, make sure you take a long stop at the New York Times part because I really want to hear about that. <laughs> Hi, Tom. Thanks for the invitation. It's great. I, I'm delighted to be here. Um, cool show. Um, so I, um, let's see, I grew up in Venezuela. I grew up in Caracas. I'm, I'm a city boy, although I grew up next to the mountains there. Um, so went to a, you know, very secular, highly technical uh, high school, K through 12, actually, where pretty much everyone ended up graduating and going into some sort of engineering or medicine. Then I, my dad, who was a very deep technologist, um, that's all he really cared about, ran the phone company in the country. Okay. He was the COO. Um, so he's a, he's, a, he's a double E, you know, technical runner of a phone company as opposed to some sort of manager thing. Mm -hmm. Much happier in a microwave and tower than at a board meeting. Um, and so he, uh, you know, he really introduced us to technology early on. You know, I had an Apple II in 1977, fresh off the press, and was programming before I knew what it, it was, really, even. Uh, so then when, uh, when I graduated from high school, he sort of got fed up. He said the country was too corrupt. We needed to leave uh, because people were just stealing money left and right. Never take an American manager and send them to the third world to run a phone company. It's a bad idea. They'll bounce back like crazy. And so we came to Boston. Uh, mm -hmm. I ended up uh, enrolling in engineering at Boston University. Then I ended up going to grad school there for physics. And, you know, through engineering and physics, I think that I, I don't think that I was the best engineer or the best physicist, but I was always the best computer guy in the teams. And so a lot of the research teams wanted to have me around because I could build really big systems. And, you know, back then, like BU was involved in some of the very early particle physics and condensed matter experiments, which created reams and reams of data and you know i was lucky enough to work with grad students especially that were brilliant and also very good systems people and you know at universities you usually the best resource universities have access to is really smart committed people that will work insane hours on these projects what you don't have is the budgets to buy like i don't know emc gear and stuff like that so you know all of us really pitched in to build massive storage systems and mass, massive computational grids. And most of it was done on the back of SonOS. Uh, so we got a lot of experience with distributed kind of open systems programming and design. Um, I don't know the way I'd call it design at this point, but definitely we, we put things together. And, uh, you know, I got a, just a, a great experience with, with you know, capturing and processing tons and tons of data. So I was coming sort of out of that distributed systems world and really 
in love with the whole idea that, you know, like, like the university had a connection machine. And I'm not sure if you remember that, Tom. I mean, maybe some of your listeners do, which was this right supercomputer that was very, very expensive. And it was hard to get cycles on it. So everyone was always I fighting see. to get cycles on it. And, you know, we were able to put together, uh, you know, a system of SonOS cluster of SonOS machines that, you know, couldn't equal the connection machine if what you needed was like teraflops of, you know, parallel processing. But most experiments didn't require that. They did require more computation than a single machine could do. But, you know, machines just running part-time processes on Unix and then connected over an IP network could deliver tons of value and people had access to these jobs, to this, this processing in, immediately. You know, you didn't have to wait, you didn't have to queue in line for the connection machine to be available for you. You know, I sort of left grad school with that attitude. I was like, there is nothing you cannot tackle with less expensive commodity hardware, commodity, you know, Unix uh, and Ethernet. Like the world is just out there to be attacked with this sort of distributed approach to problems. And so, you know, from there, I, I was sort of, I left grad school and it was right as the internet was hitting. And I could see that everywhere, these mega websites were starting to be built. And even though I have to say, like when I, you know, we were, we were a physics department. So I saw the web browser really early on. And I always think that that's the mark of me not being, definitely not being a consumer entrepreneur. Because I saw the first web browser and I was like, why bother? Like, what's the point of this thing? And uh, it clearly missed the whole, missed the mark the whole thing. Yeah. Right. But, but uh, you know, it, like to me, what was more interesting was the problems that that was going to generate. That if people really fell in love with this, this approach to getting data and services online, we were going to have to build very scalable systems to deal with that. And, you know, I was lucky enough. I started my first company out of grad school and it was a, a kind of pioneering company in social media. Mm -hmm. um, I sort of hated the space. I, to this day, I still think social media does nothing good for the world. And I'm not in any of the social media platforms, so if, I just don't have accounts. Gotcha. Um, and so, no Instagram for you, huh? No Instagram. You know, my kids put me in it. I put one uh -huh. picture, and now they make fun to their friends about how their father abandoned them at an early stage, and that was it. But my company, you know, at the time, the media companies were really correctly assessing that the internet could destroy their business. And, you know, at the, at the New York Times in particular, which was just in, an incredible institution, like beyond just a newspaper, lots of integrity and a sense of mission. Um, you know, they had sort of survived the survive and then thrive after radio and then television. And the internet was seen as one of those next things that could be threatening or could be leverage for them. Mm -hmm. And there was a sense that social media, even though we all understood it very poorly, but the idea of turning your subscriber base into content generators and build more engagement with the base at that time would be a great way to leverage these media companies into this next internet thing. You know, the internet was kind of like, especially early on, it was by the people for the people. Like everything was about making connections to the, to the audience. Um, and they were really forward-looking. Like the, the, you know, the person who was running the digital division of the Times was, was looking ahead and seeing how do we turn this? How do we, how do we turn this into a model where the content is not, not only more compelling, less expensive to make, and we can add advertisement to it and continue to grow their business? And so 
I was brought in as part of an acquisition of social media companies uh, and made the CTO there. And very early on, the problems that we had to deal with were problems of scale. So I wasn't actually interested in the social media nearly as much as I was interested in how you built a, a website from zero to five million people in a matter of months. Sure, because they had the built-in subscriber base already, so it couldn't, couldn't exactly. grow with it. You had to day one, you had to be ready to take all those people on. Yeah, and this is you know this is many many years, eight years, ten years before Facebook. So we were all struggling with the problem of how you create critical mass in social media. Like, how do you create a social network that has critical mass? And you know, before Zuckerberg had the brilliant idea to use the the colleges as a as a foundation. The Times wasn't a bad foundation for doing it, um, but you know it was. But and it solved that problem of okay, we got we got five million subscribers. Let's just use that as the seed for this media site. And the part that most interested me about that problem was we had been having a lot of trouble with the website. Um, you know, you probably remember the days of web servers and you know, load balancers and just, you couldn't throw enough load balancers and web servers and websites as soon as, especially for, you know, news organizations where there's some it's big very, event happens, right? Everyone goes there. Like I know yeah. uh, websites that sold like Ticketmaster struggle with that forever and ever and ever because absolutely you know, there'd be some concert tickets that just like take the website down. Yeah. Correct. And at times it was like, everything looked like a distributed attack. You know, it's like, it's like as soon oh, as right. something happened. Yeah, it probably looked like a security incident. Right, right. Oh yeah. But, but you know, it, it was, and it was when you wanted the website to make you the most money. Like that, that, that is when people want to see the front page and see, okay, who's invading who or who died or whatever. Right. So after many failures trying to build our own infrastructure, we were lucky enough that Akamai had started here in Boston, actually. And I knew the people, what they were doing and their approach. And it was, you know, it was grad students doing distributed programming. And they taken a distributor approach and distributed across many, many data centers. And we looked at that and I was like, this is a no-brainer. Like, we can load up our website to that service and really accelerate it. And it was probably the, the, the quickest, uh, it wasn't an easy decision because we had to give them domain control. And that was seen... You know, if you roll back the clock to 10 years ago when I started Nasuni, the idea of giving storage infrastructure to a service that someone is just going to run. It's a tough for sale. For big companies, yeah. was a tough sale. You know, given the domain control, you could you could reacquire it back very quickly, much more quickly than you can reacquire, say, the files in your organization. But still, it was very stressful for a company that's its brand is everything to give domain control to someone else. Um, so we struggled with that, but we were like, we were drowning. And this seemed like a lifeline. We made that change and it absolutely solved the problem. And overnight, there were no more load balancers, no more web servers. Like our website was fast, was highly available, was distributed everywhere in the world, and nothing could bring it down. You know, Akamai had a rock solid infrastructure that you could put any media uh, site on it. And you know, then later on, streaming, you know, Steve Jobs famously, all his keynotes were through Akamai. Yeah. Um, and so that was the inspiration for pretty much everything else, because it was the first time that I saw the intersection of very large enterprise companies, specifically media and technology at the, this, you know, at the real technology leverage point, like where you're actually building a technology that's going to solve a problem at scale that you couldn't possibly solve by just adding more people or cobbling together some packages of code or 
you know, this was a new architecture for doing stuff that was exciting. You know, it was what we had been doing as researchers, but now you could do it and solve, you know, multi-million, billion-dollar problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, we were very successful at times doing that. And then I said, you know, I, I really don't care about this social media stuff. I am actually marginally interested in the media business, but really not my core. Um, I'm an engineer. And in terms of engineers, I'm a plumber, not uh-huh. like the guy that's going to design your next Tesla coding, whatever. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I like the bottom layer. And so I looked at what problems were next. And, you know, at the time we had this big, you know, NetApp filers that we ran. Mm-hmm. And I could see that those things were filling up with files and it was great technology. You now, know, like great. About what year are we in now? Uh, this is probably 2000, 2001. Okay. And, uh, and, you know, it, it, it just seemed like there, there was two problems where two and a half problems were really clear at that time. One was the monolithic file server was coming to an end of its life. There was just, and the problem with it was, you know, when you have a fault tolerant monolithic server, it's kind of like, okay, if I have one cathedral, and then if that cathedral fails, I can go to my second cathedral, which is on standby. But that doesn't solve the real problem. The real problem is I need to make the cathedral 10 times bigger. And the monolithic architecture makes that very hard to do. Again, it's kind of like the connection machine. I have this beautiful, great architecture, but it's narrowly defined around the, the scope of that initial problem. And it's very hard to grow. And if I have to move all the... Go ahead, Tom. I was going to say that, I mean, because I'm a total storage geek, it, I, th- I always thought that I became aware of NetApp around that time. So they were, you know, a little ways, like if you're talking 2000, 2001 and the... I was an SGI guy before that. Sorry, not oh, you're an SGI. So oh. I was an IRX guy. Yeah, so I'm from yes. the Bay Area. But, um, yeah. but it, uh, the problem with those is that they work great as long as you can see two to three years in the future in terms of what you're trying to do. But if your plans change and you've got, to use your cathedral analogy, you've got one cathedral and all of a sudden your congregation triples in size or moves to the other side of town, you're in bad mm-hmm. shape. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's really tough. So. And the changes were never easy, right? Like, like if, you didn't, if you didn't calculate right for those three years, and even if you calculated right for those three years, the migration yeah. process at the end of it, of it's one replacement painful. for the next, was painful. Yeah. And so, and, and by the way, none of this would matter if the files weren't growing and the number of files wasn't growing. Like the files, everything was going digital. So it was it, the flood, it was internet-like. The flood of media into the digital repositories was just increasing, you know, three, four X every year. And I could see the, the kind of the termination point of the architecture within like a five to 10 year horizon. Yeah, yeah that was going to uh, reach sort of its theoretical limit. Like there's just it, no way. It's practical. Like that. You know, things yeah. reach practical. You know, whenever you hear any storage vendor talking, they always tell you that architecture is infinitely scalable. Right. And right. Yeah, well, it's nobody never ever true. leads with. Yeah. Nobody ever it's says like, my no. architecture is not scalable, but yeah, you're no. right. Yeah. Correct. It's like, it's yeah. a, well, we really top out at 100 terabytes. And then no one says that. But especially monolithic architectures all have a stopping practical point. Sure, you could build a bigger cathedral, but really, not, yeah. that's just not going to hold in, the, in, the, in a breeze. So, the first problem was capacity, just sheer capacity. The second problem, just to, just to be linear in this, 
is, you know, it was the very the great thing about Meta, right? Like if you're if you're a big fan, I mean, the reason they really got on the map, besides the fact that they were that Waffle was optimized incredibly well for an era when compute was expensive and hard to get, so they could, you know, they were applying processor power to the to the network protocols in a really good tight way, which no one else was doing at the time. But besides that, the concept of the snapshots, the concept that you could roll back to versions of the file system was really excellent, right? And the way they implemented it with links was terrific because it saved tons of space and you could go to a previous point in time without having to go through your backup. Backup was the big second problem. First problem is how to fit the stuff in the box. Second problem is how do I protect it out of the box? Because, you know, protecting 100 terabytes is easy. Protecting a petabyte is a lot harder. It takes a lot longer to do those backups. And so I saw those two problems. And then the, the sort of and a half problem was, it was a real sense that we were never, if you needed to test DR, if you had a distributed system of access where people needed to be accessing the files from multiple locations, um, it was difficult to do that way too difficult. Like you could have one active site and a, and a passive one that you fail over to, but beyond that, things just got extremely complicated. And so if you had five offices around the world that needed access to the content, that was very, very painful. And so what I did is I, you know, I, this seems to be like a pattern. I, I went to the times and I said, why don't we build a storage cluster here? Like what we need is a storage cluster. And, you know, after like a few months of back and forth, I finally had to cook the come to Jesus conversation with the CEO. And I said, you know, I just, I think I need to go start a company because I believe this thing is going to be big. And I don't think we're the right company to be building those things. And so I left and I started Archivus. And, you know, Archivus was a, you know, it was a humbling lesson for me in many ways because I was a storage outsider, you know, in terms of NetApp or EMC, I hadn't come through that path. I was, I was a researcher, you know, a physicist that had gone via the internet into a media company. But I had a good understanding of the problem domain. And I knew the things, the boxes that were being built then were not sufficient to solve the problem. So I started, you know, researching what was around in terms of distributed architectures for storing data. And I was lucky to come up, um, EMC had bought a company called Filepool. And they wrapped that thing up, which wasn't a great product, but it was the first of what we would call today object stores or cloud storage systems. That was, I mean, it wasn't the first, but it was the first that was, a, that was introduced to the market by a storage company. Right. And you have to give EMC a ton of credit. I mean, this is when EMC had real like technology chops mm -hmm. and they were, they were really, they, they badly wanted to get rid of backup as kind of an exit outlet of their storage systems. So they were looking for high capacity, even if they were slow, distributed storage cluster architectures. And they found this thing that was an object store. And, you know, the basics of building an object store are not rockets. Building a really good one is very hard to do. But the basic concept, the fact that you're going to have these assets that are in servers and they self-replicate. And then if a server fails, you get new copies elsewhere. That was sort of, you know, Interesting enough, that was that was Napster. Napster is the one that really brought that to the huh. picture. You probably remember that, Tom. It's like, yeah. it's like you know, after peer-to-peer -peer opened the, the world of the conceptual world of storage and said, you know what, we can store copies of the data in every single server, turn every PC into a server, 
and then always have capacity and always and the more copies you have the more access to those copies you have so access to the data improves as use of the data increases increases like, yeah. like akamai you know like a cdn so it was at that time it was clear to me so, so i looked at the emc product and i was like there are two ways in which you can improve this product massively one was it's at heart a metadata problem so put a database in the middle, don't think of it like a storage system and make that database very flexible so that you can locate data geographically, you can expire data, you can do all kinds of database-like operations. So at heart, you're building a distributed database, you're not building a distributed storage system. Um, that was a very technical one. The, more, the easier one, and the one that probably was more lasting, was you know we knew at the time that everything was gonna converge in this sort of web services access protocols. Um, and if you can believe it, EMC at the time was, you know, after having won the day because the, 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 you know, the fiber channel, the storage protocols became standard, EMC became enamored with proprietary everything on the access layer. And this box, the Centera box, that's what they, they called it. I remember Centera box. Yeah. Everyone remembers it. Not yep. fun. Um, but it had a proprietary protocol to access the data and it was really cumbersome like it, you had to have i think there was a, a c plus plus and a java sdk and you had to compile your code to be able to access the storage so imagine every application had to be compiled into the storage which you know if you're emc and you have market leverage you can force convolt to do that you can fold the you can you can force the isvs to do that but it's like it's a such a non-open architecture it's just yeah heinous. so i was like i know how to fix that Let's put a web services layer on top of it. We're going to have something that looks a lot like the S3 interface around our cluster, and everyone's going to love us for it. And, you know, we took that product to market. We were very successful in federal agencies in, you know, essentially big shops where there were developers that could code to the web services interface. Uh, and the system scale magnificently. It was, you know, they had cryptography distributed throughout the system. So... People like our security agencies loved using it. Um, it, it. It scaled to petabytes and petabytes. It had a lot of great attributes. But my frustration through that whole period, now we're getting to sort of press, and my, my frustration through this whole period was, you know, what I loved about Akamai was they could sell to anyone and they could sell quickly to anyone. Mm -hmm. What I hated about our archivist system was it was, a, it was a data center project every time you sold archivists to a customer. They had to, you know, upgrade the flooring, upgrade the ventilation, and deploy, you know, hundreds of nodes to be able to deploy these clusters. The, the, that was the first part. It was a lot of infrastructure to build, to build a cluster for a customer. And the second one was all of IT runs on file systems. So if you ask any IT director, storage architect, how are you going to deploy infrastructure to your organization, they'll tell you, it's like, we're going to give them NFS, we're going to give them SIFs. Even if we give them HTTP, it has to have a file system construct so we can control it. So you can organize it, you can apply access control, you, it fits in DFS and it fits in LDAP or Active Directory. All those tools for control are built around this idea of the file system, which is, you know, it's one of the most powerful things. Like it's at the heart of Unix for a reason. That was the most humbling thing for me because while I had this super cluster, I had this like nuclear power plant of storage, I could see 
like Iceland with what I consider much less developed technology. It was harder to scale the clusters. They had performance issues. They had all sorts of ugliness, but they had a file system. And because of that, all my friends in media were telling me, Andres, you need to look at this company. Because, by the way, NetApp also missed the boat entirely because NetApp thought this was a performance play. And so, you know, they bought Spinnaker. I don't know if you remember all this stuff. Oh, but well, that, you're like, right. That's like, you're right in my swim lane. So I've adopted right. Isilon as a reseller before the product even worked correctly. The idea of it, <laughs> for my customers, the idea of, of what it was going to be able to do and they alleged to be able to do, this is like 2005, was, was so exciting. Yes. Uh, that people were buying the, the promise. You yes. know I, mean? I mean, it was that exciting because for a lot of these companies, they had really limited staff and yeah, it yeah. was slower than advertised. It did not scale infinitely. We yes. could have a whole nother podcast about how oh, much yeah. I've learned about what happens when you get over 1 billion files, things start getting really uncomfortable. I don't care oh, what your yeah. file system and is. The policies. Yes. Yeah. It gets very, well, right. What if, yeah. And if you need to rebuild a part of that, anyway, yeah, it's a whole thing. But uh, you know, it's funny. We the person who runs support at Nasuni came mm -hmm. out of Iceland, and I remember hiring him on the spot because of that, because he had been through the pain. And I was he like, knows you so survive much. that. Yeah, yes. I Weird. I'm 99 sure he knows me, um, and I, I'll I'll explain it later. But I think he probably likes me too. Actually, we I think that I did some work with his org at the time. But um, yeah, that's the but. You're right. The beauty of the file system is a lot of these places had very limited support staff. Um, yes. So if you had something where you could wrap all that standard, you know, LDAP and, and, and file services and all that stuff, that infrastructure was already built. So this slid right into that. You know, you, I have a friend of mine who's just a, a brilliant technologist that works for one of these big tech companies. And, and he's told me, he's like, look, you, there are all kinds of things you can do if you think that developers are everywhere and they can mm -hmm. code applications anywhere. And I think that there is such a push nowadays for this, like, we're going we're gonna to do everything on S3 and S3-like interfaces. I'm like, yeah, that's great if you're a development shop. So if mm -hmm. what you're running is like Instagram or you're running Facebook, you're mainly, the core business is a development business. Right. But say that the core business is making cars or the core business is making buildings. Yeah. You have a lot of engineers that need a lot of technology. They need storage. They need compute. They need applications. But they're not developers. Yeah. They just want to get their job done. And the cleanest way, and that's why we developed it this way, to provide that technology is through infrastructure. And mm -hmm. that's where the file system plays a crucial role. Like you, to be able to deliver storage at scale so that regular engineers or regular people can use the storage um, it gives you a very clean separation between the data that people need to use. And, and it's kind of the right balance. You know, it's like yeah. you make something that is, that is tighter and more, more narrow, and you end up with these application silos where it's great. You, in Salesforce.com, you don't have to think about storage, but mm -hmm. it's useless as a storage platform. It's too right. narrow. It's a, it's a, it's a yeah. pipeline, right? It's, it's, a, it's just a silo. Um, and you, you think about S3, and that's like very flexible and, you know, you can import lots of files and do all kinds of stuff, but you need a developer to write those APIs and to make yep. sure you're doing the right things. And it's very hard for other people to then use the same storage and use the same data unless they're talking to your application. 
Right, because the application has it has a chokehold on the intelligence about that data, right? Correct. Versus like That's, if you've got a file system, there's this sort of intermediary, you know, this whatever, this other entity that's like, hey, I know where this stuff is. I know who's allowed to access it. I know how this person wants to access it versus this person, et cetera. Yes. It's, you know, it's infrastructure. It's why we call it infrastructure. It's at the top, it looks always the same, but the bottom can be completely rewritten and you can go from a monolithic controller to a cluster to the next thing and not change the interface. That's very powerful. That second lesson was the hardest. So Hitachi finally buys the company. We were OEM for a while. Again, Hitachi, engineering-run company like EMC in the good days. Yeah. Uh, you know, very product-centric, very quality-centric. Fantastic products. Yeah. Oh, it, yes, yes. And uh, and you know, like we loved it. I, like like I, I was almost as happy as when I was at the Times because there was such integrity. But these were now engineers instead of yeah. media people. So they were my people. Yeah. And, yeah right, right. And they said. What do you want to do? And say, so as soon as they bought the company, they said, you are now the CTO. You are, you are, this is your technology strategy. What do you want to do? And I said, I've got it. I know what we need to do. We need to start building these super clusters, big size. We're going to build them. We're going to fill them up with object storage. We're going to put the archivist product in all these centers around the world. We're going to take our NAS product, the the, you know, at the time, Blue Arc was the Blue Arc Titan stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were tying our relationship with it was right before the acquisition. I believe I get this fact right. right. And um, so we had access to Blue Arc, which was a terrific technology for high performance NAS uh, storage. You know, it was missing features here and there, but the, the performance was excellent and people in media loved it. Um, and then we had our HNAT, our, our small NAS product, which was not as good, but it was a good Linux, you know, box with mm -hmm. NAS. And then it ran well on our blog storage stuff, which was really the stuff that sang. And I was like, we got all the pieces. What we need is super clusters in the back end. And then we need to rewrite the file system, specifically in the Blue Art platform, to make sure that we solve the problems of the file servers of today without forcing people to deploy clusters. Mm -hmm. And that's not easy to do. I mean, we could go into it architecturally, but the 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 key insight was you had to rewrite the file system because you had to make the assumption, the really valuable thing for those, those of your listeners that are like file system geeks, is every file system is nothing but a boatload of metadata that holds the files together and the versions of the files together. And every file system runs into the same problem. How do I keep resourcing metadata so I can keep stitching together this very large metadata structure that's just growing and growing and growing the more files enter the file system and the more changes that are made to the file system. Um, you know, pretty much every iteration of every design of file system we've done runs into the bottleneck of where do I get more inodes from? Where do I get what more? What are we going to do metadata? with all this file system metadata? And then every time Correct. you add some sort of whiz bang feature, like, you know, snapshots or uh, automated replication or Boom. any of that Explosion. adds more and more and more metadata, yes. right? So you end up with, and it's and where, do you, where do you put right. that? How do you where even do you put get it? hardware that that can run fast enough right. on? And yeah, at some point, to your point, you have so many slices of inodes, right. of file system metadata that it just becomes, no matter how much you try to parallelize that, it does become very challenging. It's possible. Yeah. It's a bottleneck, right? Yeah. And so, and by the way, a cluster solves that problem by resourcing inodes from multiple nodes in the cluster, but you have to keep growing the cluster. 
So the customers start growing the cluster and running these mega clusters, which is, it's a solution, but it's like, it's a very costly, very taxing solution for the customer. And I mean, not to go too deep into this, but storage clusters have to reach consistency at the node level, which means the bigger the cluster, the slower that consistency layer gets. So the performance of the cluster suffers as you increase the size of the cluster. That is a very undesirable property. Even though hypothetically, you've got more and more hardware as you grow your cluster, it provides less and less value for that reason. Yes. Yeah, I it's called the cap theorem and it's absolutely brutal. I mean, there's just, it's like the speed of light. It's like, this is one of those few like engineering computer yeah, it's science. it's like a constant, right? It's like an unchangeable. You cannot yeah. go faster unless you release the consistency constraint. And that's what we thought was possible to do by separating the consistency layer and the storage, the capacity layer from each other. So at the time, I didn't have that much clarity at Hitachi, but I realized after banging my head into a wall for 18 months, like I had done at the times, I was like, you know, it's crazy. I'm in a technology company, I'm in a storage company, but I have an idea and it wasn't the re You would think if someone comes to your company and says, I've got a new file system design, that should be enough reason to put them in an asylum. Right. Because it's so hard to build a file system from yeah. scratch, right? But that wasn't actually the hardest thing. The hardest thing was that I was asking Hitachi to start a service. I was saying, let's build big cloud storage data like centers. And market it as, as a service as opposed to like your typical, like and here's your hardware and software. That's and right. Yeah. Because if you think about it, that solved a big problem. That solved the problem of now customers don't need to build these mega clusters. Now right. the sales can go faster. And I know a lot of customers that have, you know, hundreds of terabytes that would benefit from the technology. So we could go through our entire client portfolio and sell right. them file storage as a service. But true file storage, not like lame file storage. Like, mm -hmm. give me your files. And if you ever want them back, it'll take three days to get them in a truck. Right. That's... Right. That's our mountain. That's not real technology. That's just yeah. someone in a truck. So, yeah. so I, I just banged myself into a wall. They were like, we are not going to go into the store service business. And, and you know, it's interesting because some of the DNA at Hitachi came mm -hmm. out of storage networks, which is another Boston company, a high flying, you know, 90s company that tried to do this, st mm -hmm. started the whole concept of storage as a service, but they had zero technology jobs. And so they right. were. They, they were sort of burned by the idea that storage as a service could be a good business because without technical leverage, it's a really terrible business. You're yeah. buying storage from EMC and then you're trying to just trying to resell it as a service, it. Yeah. rent it. Like, yeah. That's an MSP. That's just not great margins, not a good business. Yeah. So I, after banging myself into a wall for about you know almost two years, I finally told Hitachi, I said, I think it's time for me to go and start another company. And uh -huh. then I had absolute clarity about what the necessary wedge was. I, you know, you probably remember this, Tom. It's like, it was essentially the Veritas play. We're going to develop the most advanced file system mm -hmm. that's going to run across all of the up and coming object storage platforms, which at the time, fortunately, Amazon had just released the first of the AWS services which was S3 storage, S3, you know, yep. simple storage. And, you know, we looked at that and Amazon was good enough. And this is something Amazon does really well. The, the infrastructure kind of communication part of that team was, even to this date, is terrific because it's really geared at developers. So 
they don't just do like marketing releases. They release all the technical documentation with it so that you can understand what they're putting in front of you. And when we read what the, the, the Dynamo papers, which is the paper that describes how S3 was put together, we realized that we were looking at the same thing. We realized, oh my God, this is, this is like archivists all the way down to the web services layer. So we knew exactly that we could count on this, the same semantic properties in this new offering that was going to be public, that was going to be everything I had wanted to build for Hitachi in the backend. Uh, and that all that would be needed was a file system layer that we could then package as a, as a NAS appliance and go straight at NetApp. So that our target was, we're going to give you a, a NAS controller that is infinitely scalable and has infinite versioning from a single controller without having to build a cluster around it. And we're going to be resourcing these inodes directly from essentially having formatted the object store, the, the S3 cloud storage system. So if you put it all together, we're going to deliver high performance NFS and SIFs at the edge. We're going to deliver versioning that's infinite so that you don't have to back it up and you can restore things instantly from versioning. And we're going to give you access to this capacity layer that is also geo-distributing your assets so that you don't have to worry about replication or anything like that. And you know, I thought this is, the world is gonna love it. The world is going to just take this and not, not be able to eat enough of it. Um, and I was so wrong, A, because NetApp customers love their product. And so it was really hard to displace a, a NetApp lover because, you know, it's a great technology. Yeah, they're very, they're like almost religious about Absolutely. To it. Because it's, it's not just a product. It's a whole, it's a tribe. It's a vibe. It's a platform. It's a whole exactly. way of, it's a whole it's way like of SGI. life. You know? It's like any Absolutely. great company. Yeah, it is. It, it creates, is exactly, actually. Yeah. yeah the, the group of followers is very, very loyal. Yeah. I have a, I have a great friend, actually, the founder from, uh, from uh, Blue Arc. He's, mm -hmm. he's, he's religious about the immutable laws of marketing. And, you know, the first law is there's only one leader per category. And if you're going to be the next player, you better define a subcategory. That's the second law. Oh, yeah. And, and we ran squarely into that problem. Like yeah. no one, no one that was serious about NAS wanted to consider an alternative. Now, Isilon was different because it was. Well, they it was created seen as a scale out storage. They created their own. Yes. They made their own market. And you and Correct. I know under the hood, the problem they're solving. And to some extent, the way that they're solving it is similar. But yeah, they, they were like, no, we're not that. We're this. Yeah, and it's not a mass. They there's were no incredibly inside. successful, right? Yes. Yeah. So there, there is a there's a lot to be learned in life. It's like yeah, and marketing is a, is a, it's a really like magic science. Like if you get it right, it's alchemy. Gold comes out of your ears, and if you get yeah. it wrong, you have to sweat for a yeah. long time. That's and right. you know, so at Nasuni, we were very lucky. So I started the company. We were struggling to displace these accounts that we really wanted to displace, and then. One of our customers, actually, and this is this tells you how, how great those early customers can be, um, and who, who, who was an EMC shop and had replaced the entire, you know, if you can't go after NetApp, go after VNX because that sure. was not a great product, right? Yeah. That was not nearly as good a product. And so they had replaced the entire, you know, kind of EMC infrastructure with the SUNY. They were very happy with it. They didn't have to back up. They could see they had capacity, but he came to us and, and he now runs one of our product divisions at Masuni, which is mm -hmm. terrific because he was so insightful. He said, you know, since I have this version in 
that is communicating can be communicated to any other appliance why don't you allow me to see the data from location a from lo to location c to location a why don't we create a global file system that ties all of these things together because they were in a construction business and it's a classic problem right they were they were uploading 500 terabytes of images on one site and they needed to see a corporate and have it all store like it wasn't a transfer problem you wanted to end up with storage records that you know this project here's all the video that that we do at the construction site and all this stuff and at the sites you wanted things like pdfs about hiring people and compliance things and communicate all this stuff and you didn't want to be moving it there you just wanted it accessible to be there so creating yeah. a global file system gave you that and so you know we scratch our heads it took about less than a year for us to essentially piggyback off the versioning system to build what ironically enough, was essentially a two-way Akamai-like system. It was right. a read-write, file-consistent distribution, global distribution system for very large assets. And that was sort of the, the product breakthrough for the company. Because then we were able to go into accounts and say, our qualification criteria essentially became, you got NetApp, you got two locations, we don't need to talk. You're probably too in love with it. You're not in enough pain unless you're growing hundreds of terabytes every week. Right. However, you've got NetApp, you've got five locations. We can, we can do something for you that no one else can do. We can give you a global file system. And as you probably know, like operations like backup and things like that over lots of locations get very, very painful. Yeah, it starts and to get so, really complicated. And so, right. So all of a sudden it became really, even though we were at heart, just a really good scalable NAS that you didn't need to back up, the added functionality of being able to introduce a global file system to an organization was so differentiated that then you started seeing people, you know, dump traditional infrastructure and go into the cloud because they could get this thing that there was no way but to they get. They couldn't get elsewhere, right? And so you and you started Nasuni two thousand nine, right? That's According correct. To the internet, okay, cool. Yeah. The internet so, is always right, Tom. Always. The internet is always, always right. right. Yeah, and it's funny. So. They always say it takes 10 years to build and perfect a great file system, which means assuming that, and that's not the internet, that's me and a lot of my friends believe this. So if I'm right, that means that if you look at the, I mean, we don't have a whiteboard, of course, but if you go from the you know frontier, early adopters, you entered the ready market phase, at least technologically, like about three years ago now. That is correct. So, and, and so I'm just curious having that, you know, I haven't looked at your revenue trends or anything, but did that, did that hold true 10 years in? Yes. Do you feel like you guys really hit that rocket ship? Absolutely. I mean, we, I, I, the business started to change dramatically. There were things missing in the file system capabilities in the first five years for sure. And, mm -hmm. the, you know, and we solved that problem by selling kind of a narrowly, you know, defined use cases. We, we kept ourselves out of trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think about five years ago, we had enough completion of the feature set to, to go at it, to really. And we started seeing the, the big transition is we started seeing the size of the accounts. Yeah. And today, you know, if you think about it, the technology was built to give larger accounts a bigger advantage. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's a, our technology is a technology for scale. Right. Like if, you have a, if you have 10 petabytes, you're going to benefit more than the guy that has one petabyte and so on and so forth. So to be able to have a, 
you know, to, to be able to enter the room of companies that have the 10 petabyte problems was game changing for us. Sure. Cause you have to, you got to have that credibility first. Yeah. And That's then once right. you get there, it's like critical mass. Right. And so those, yeah, those, I can tell you those first seven, five, seven years were extremely painful because, you know, we kept getting accounts that had hundred, 200 terabytes. And while we could solve their problems, it was such an under, that's what you have. I would give the advice to anyone that wants to build a, a really a system for scale that you have to start, you're going to be starting smaller and you just have to bid your time and really work with those customers that are willing to will, work with you and yep. that are willing to tell you how to make things what they need to be mm -hmm. um, to be able to get there. You know, like I'll never forget, we had, a, we had an architecture firm in Chicago that was an early adopter of the technology and the performance testing that they did in the system, they were replacing 30 sites, again, all EMC, so mm -hmm. we could do it. And the testing was all around performance. Can you get the performance of the file system to work at all these sites? And, you know, it was, you know, the, the sites were hundreds of people. Maybe the biggest one was a few thousand people. And the challenge was they were like these little use cases that would all of a sudden surprise us in terms of the performance. And this, you know, finding this during a POC, it's scary. It can send the deal back, you know, sideways. Yeah, send you sideways. But Finding this after the deals close, and when you have the CIO, who now you have a good relationship with, who's trusting you, who's betting his career on it, and you just go to work every day thinking, what's going to break next? And thinking, how are we going to fix it fast enough for the users not to kick us out within six, nine months? Yeah. And you know, we did that for about almost a year, maybe, maybe a year and a half. And you know, I can't say enough of how heroic those customers are, those early adopters, and how heroic all the people that say were in my company at that time doing support and doing engineering and really working around the clock to keep things together yeah. for the customer. Because, you know, remember, storage is like, once you turn it on, everyone is on it and no one accepts any downtime. I would say other than um, communication, so other than internet and phones, the number one thing you know, we provide a lot of services to our clients. I'm usually the guy that's getting the PO for whatever the storage is, right? So I'm the first call. Um, <laughs> if the storage is not working, people get very emotional. You know, it's not it's not something people can work around, you know. And storage as a compound, you know, has, a, has an extra feature to it, which is what makes it so valuable. But it's also is what makes it so stressful to go in. This is why whenever I see like a joke company going in, I'm brutal. Whether I'm talking to investors, prospects, anyone. Because you cannot lose the data. And the, the commitment, you know, the, the thing that we were approaching the market with was you're not going to need to back up. You don't need any secondary protection. Right, a, We've got that's, you. A very, uh, that's a very, you know, aggressive claim, right? And, yeah. you know, now it's 13 years later. We've never lost customer data. And we've proven that this model is by far safer than backing up your data, backing up your file servers, because that model has risk. It's just that the risks are all passive risks. The risks that you don't discover until you get hit by a disaster. And then you figure out, oh, my backups are not correct. Well, most importantly, the only way to know if your backups are good is to restore the entire backup. The entire thing, do that, no one does that. Once you, well, once you get to a certain scale, I would argue it's not even possible. 
It's not practical. It's one of these terms, right. one of these that vendors love to do. It's like we've got you absolutely bulletproof protection. I mean, when did you test it? You right. can't test it. So you yeah. can't tell me it's gonna work. And you know, I cannot tell you how many customers Masuni has acquired in the last two years, especially since the pandemic started, that were hit by ransomware, were running one of the top tier storage, I mean backup vendors. So they were doing their cohesity, their rubric backups. They got hit with ransomware and the recovery time of file servers across a number of locations, say you get hit in a hundred locations and you have 500 terabytes compromised, that's it. You're done. There's no backup is going to get you those file servers back in time. And it has, it, it has much more to do with A, how slow it is to, to rebuild a file server. So nothing to do with the backup stuff. And B, the fact that you're trying to get from a media server all the backups flowing back to many file servers at once, which puts a bottleneck. You know, the, the media server becomes the bottleneck for the whole system. So now you triage and you say, you know, New York, London will recover you in the next week, but the rest of you, two weeks, three weeks, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. and now you start scratching your Bitcoin wallet for, you know, <laughs> to, to, you have millions of dollars to pay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, we've all seen that in the field over the last few years. And that's, it is really tough because it, it's a lot. Yeah, you want to back up a host environment. You want to back up your infrastructure. Great. We're going to back up a file server. That's a terrible, that was a terrible idea when I was at the Times. Yeah. You know, I would always tell my teams is like, we are going to rely on those NetApp snapshots, not on backup. And if it's out of the snapshot history, because we only have so many, that was the, that was a constraint for NetApp, right? Only it's still the constraint to this day. Only so many snapshots. Um, if it's out of that, I want to see it in a in another file system. I don't want to see it in a backup bundle. I want a an rsync, you know, file system image that I can poke and probe and see that we've got all the files on this other construct. Yeah, um, when possible, my recommendation, again, depending on the application, like nothing's absolute, but is. If you can keep a second unique copy of the data, then do that. In the original because, format. Exactly. Because if, if, if you really, really, really need to get the data back, which hopefully you never will, the best case scenario is to just have another unique copy of it. Correct. You know, all data is not created equal. You, know, you can't do that with everything. But for the really mm -hmm. important stuff, I think that's the, that's the key. And again, back to our, the beginning of our conversation, it is easier to do so if you have critical data and it's not that much data. It is impossible to do so if you're talking about a petabyte of data. Yeah, once you get to a certain and, size, scale. Yeah, I mean, you're an oil and gas company, you have seismic data and you have petabytes of it. What backup are you doing that is meaningful in that scenario? You have to have a file system you can count on for protection. By the way, I think Iceland, that, you know, no one backs up a, a scalar cluster. That I don't know anyone that does because you can't, right? It's, they're too big. They're too yeah, big to too fail. Many files to be back and too much data. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But the problem with the clusters is the version system is limited. So when you're using one of those clusters and you're providing, say, user shares, and you get a ransomware attack and it goes out of the versioning window, you are out. You are now completely exposed. There's no way to get the you know there are no versions to come back from, and so to me that. That speaks to the, the need to separate what we talked about at the beginning, the need to separate the consistent edge of the access part of the file system from the actual storage capacity piece of the file system. 
because you need to have file systems that scale in every dimension. They need to be able to scale capacity, object counts, and versions, you know, file counts and versions. All right. So tell me in the, I guess, so it's been like whatever, 12 or 13 years, what's the most unexpected, what's the craziest thing that's happened in your tenure at Nasuni? <laughs> craziest thing that's happened in my tenure. That's a great question. Um, well, I'll tell you what, the, like one of the best, I think, moments for the company was, especially when we were struggling to figure out how to sell this thing in a way that, um, in a way that was efficient. Uh, and the channel, by the way, the, Everything from day one, I thought we're going to leverage the channel because otherwise there's no leverage. Otherwise, uh-huh. there's, we'll we'll never get there. And uh, and you know, and we and we had we had tried lots of things. You know, the, our, our our pricing model is very simple. Our um, we 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 give the channel participation on on the new deal and the expansion and the renewal, so that they're really building the business with us. Because we were trying to pull channel, especially the real bars, right? The guys like you guys that add real value. We were trying to pull them away from selling the next Iceland cluster or the next NetApp arrays, right? Which were transactions of much bigger dollars, but they didn't have the, the kind of recurrent tail and the, the expansion. You know, our business has that wonderful, every customer expands and they just dial it up at the end of the year and you're not selling them anything new. You, you don't have to come back and do more disk. They're just dialing up the license and it's, it's great, right? So, so we did a lot of good things that way, but if you're not... You know, if you're not aiming your gun in the right direction, it doesn't matter how good the gun is. Like, you're just not going to hit anything. And finally, you know, just a, a, a brilliant kid that was in our, in our product marketing organization, so he was looking at the Salesforce report. And uh, this, is, this is big brain instead of big data. Like, he was just looking through the reports and he said, Give me accounts that have more than five sites and I can triple your conversion rates. When I look at this data, I can see that the accounts that have more sites have such intense pain around backup. Backup Mm -hmm. is so much harder around capacity management and this need to synchronize data potentially across the sites, but really it was the first two. Everything gets harder if you have more sites. So if you have more capacity and if you have more backups at those sites, it's a pain, it's a bigger pain. And it's more than just five times the pain, it's like 10 times the pain. Mm-hmm. And the moment we introduced that as a qualification criteria, our pipeline ratios tripled. And we were now, we were able to be sustainable. That was, gotcha. a, that was a big, happy moment for us because now we knew where to aim the gun. That's sort of accidental, well, not on the part of your colleague, but like, that that you discovered that at the right moment. That's yeah. awesome. All right. Last but not least, looking forward, like what do you, and this doesn't have to be storage related, but anywhere in technology and it could be storage related. What do you, what are you most excited about uh, coming up over the next couple of years? So, you know, the, so let's answer in two parts. I think storage wise, I'm excited to see. So if you, if you, if you look at our design, the, um, the controller is is still monolithic. The access point is still monolithic, and the file system is distributed in the backend with the new tools and with the fact that you know, like I would say, I forget what the, the I mean, I don't know what the, the most recent numbers are, but something like you know, sixty percent to seventy percent of our, our existing clients are have part or most all of their deployment in the cloud. 
Mm-hmm. So they're running infrastructure now entirely in the cloud or right. very big parts of it, right? I think in the cloud, it's a software only world and it's fabulous for doing things that we couldn't have dreamt of doing when we had, to, you know, when you have to resource an appliance and keep the code up to date and make sure that the cache doesn't overflow and all this stuff at an appliance level, it is a hard job and it is a resource management job like you know, it's like you're going to the moon and you only get so much gas and you better have enough gas to come back, right? When you are in a software-defined world like the cloud is and you have endless resources in every direction and you have access to things like Dynamo in one direction and, you know, scalable staging file system in another, you can now build web services with that. And I definitely, I mean, we are, we are looking at how to build essentially service-based access layers to the system that reduce any kind of dependency on a single server access architecture because everything we do is about scale. And so being able to, you know, like we already have this, this product, being able to, for instance, I can take a, a 10 petabyte volume file system with billions and billions of files and I can do a full scan and feed it through some image recognition software or some text recognition software at a scale of a web service. You know, I can parallelize it. I can crawl yeah, it. because it's all... Because all the data is in somewhere that you've got unlimited all, all, resources. Yeah, that's right. And the data is essentially, you know, it's it's what a file system should be. The mm-hmm. data is this self-describing, very big metadata framework scaffolding that's that all your files are hanging from, and you can crawl it. You can you can walk the whole thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, top to bottom. So that's um, so that's definitely on the storage side. And you know, then on the uh, on the world side, you know what I'd love to see. I I, I think. I think electric cars as a starting point for mm-hmm. transformational technology is just a terrible idea because all the reasons that people talk about. But I would love to see um, Uber pool-like microbuses in cities so we can get rid of those very large buses that do nothing but produce smoke and are really inefficient. And, yeah. and you know, like in Boston, we have a... a a bus system that is absolutely worthless and no one uses it because yeah, the trains from, are pretty good, but uh, I've never the, ridden. And the, bus the trains there. are better, but yeah. the buses are terrible. And the reason yeah. for it is the moment you have to go from one bus to the next, you've wasted half the day doing the yeah. connection. And if you think about it from a networking perspective, the fa- the fact that we're not using smaller vehicles with dynamic routing, mm-hmm. it's you know it's almost like the entire world of communication went to packet switching except transportation didn't hear about it. They didn't get the memo. And so we're in these fixed line architectures. And I think it's terrible for people that don't have cars in cities to not have a transportation system they can depend on. And you don't think the answer is to just put a whole bunch more cars out there with no driver, one person per car? That's a joke. Don't answer that. yeah, I mean, I self-driving. Yet another yeah. bad idea from from yeah, an engineer's I perspective. I agree I'm like, more, this is you know. this is not a good way to go. Well, what are they? What is that? I think it's. I I didn't study psychology, but I think, is it called the trolley dilemma? Like my problem yes. is when that thing has to decide what to crash into. At yes. that point, it's better if it's either a just an accident or b a human making that cognitive decision. That's just one man's opinion, but I mean, that's, yes. I, I'm afraid to have, I don't want computers making decisions about yes. life and death. That's just me. Well, you know, it's, One man's you should listen, Michael Lewis is great podcast on all this. I think it's Michael yeah, Lewis. Yeah, I've listened to all of them. He's like my favorite author. I love that guy. So yeah. he, he was talking about the, uh, I could be wrong about this, but I think it was him that was describing 
essentially the the economics of what happens if you have self-driving car and basically the pedestrians are now like you know what i'm just gonna walk across the street right and have every car stop because i'm like because i'm like an idiot because i can because you all of a sudden you're not worried about the other drivers so that right there it's that's a bad idea and i do i mean i think so I'm in New York City today and one of the, you know, I live in LA, so there's only driving. There's nothing else. Nobody yeah. does anything but drive. There. Correct. You just, you just, what happens is I'm almost 50 now. As you get older, your world just gets smaller because I don't want to spend what in Southern California we call so much windshield time, right? Windshield time. Like uh-huh. life is too short to spend it sitting in traffic. You know, you go like, I don't even pick my friends up from the airport anymore. So that's right. Get in a cab. The traffic. Love is, you like a brother, absolutely. but I'll see you when you get here. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but in like in New York, I think the subway system is amazing because, of course, they were able to build it before they built a lot of the city. So, with the exception of the Second yeah. Avenue subway, they had a pretty good north-south infrastructure in place. And then, of course, from east to west is only I think it's only a it's couple a, miles. So. Right. If you're a relatively able-bodied human being with a good pair of walking shoes, you can get anywhere in 20 anywhere. minutes. But yeah, you take somewhere like any other major metropolitan area that's not a long, skinny right. island. And yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, Chicago, Boston, there are cities that would, Seattle would really benefit from this idea of a dynamic pool of buses that are going around. And we wouldn't be, you know, there wouldn't be so much smoke on the streets. So I'd like yeah. to see that. I love you know, that. It, idea. It's funny. I think, in te- I think technology, technology that has changed the world really tells us how to change the world. So, yeah. you know, packet switching, apply that concept anywhere. Supply mm-hmm. chain, transportation, it's a good concept. Like yeah. dynamically routing systems, it, yeah. you know, close point to point with lots of reliable, multi- yeah. you know, multiple paths to get from A to B is a good idea. Open the the other one is, is power. Like, yeah. why can't we have I'm a huge fan. I'm a physicist. So I'm a huge fan mm-hmm. of nuclear power. Mm-hmm. I'm like, however, we need to make it safe. We yeah. need to make power so that A, it doesn't melt down the planet. But B, this is a really important thing. We have Moore's-like efficiency in terms of our power production. The world yeah. will need more and more energy. No question about it. So give me Moore's law-like power generation. Don't yeah. tell me I need to conserve energy. Don't tell me we're going to keep putting windmills around the world. It's like, that doesn't scale. Look at the problem as a chip. Yeah. You know, manufacturer will look at this problem. Yeah. Like, how do we get double the yield every single year from this thing? So I think that's one vector. If I can just introduce, I don't disagree with you there. If I can introduce one other vector, why has battery technology not evolved? Because why we're are doing we using 20-year-old battery technology yeah. in brand new electric cars? Why? Why are we building giant factories to make 20-year-old technology batteries? Yes. Yes. Why? I mean, maybe somebody is, right? I can't find it on on the internet, but I feel like somebody out there should be looking for the, I guess, to to back to your Moore's Law point, why is battery capacity not increasing? You know, because think about it. The number one reason I don't have an electric car is I can't drive to San Francisco from Los Angeles without having to stop. And not only that, and if you and if you had to stop, it would take a long time to recharge it. That's the yeah. Separate, there's that's, there's two that. problems, right? There's yeah. power density and power charge time. And I, we there are things that are far more promising, like you know, fuel cells are far more promising. But we're suffering from the path dependency problem. In yeah. other words, you know, when Sony created the lithium-ion battery, 
they were trying to solve a very good problem with it, which is how do I power my electronics, which is relatively low power. The, demands, right, they don't right? require the same number of amps as a drivetrain. Absolutely. You know? Like right. the day yeah. someone said, you know what? What if we took a thousand, a thousand of those batteries and put them in a car? And yes. put them in a car. I'd, yeah. be like, I'd be like, you're ridiculous. Get out yeah. of this. You, you go get a science degree and then come back. But we've done it. And we think we're doing a, a like, I think this whole thing about electric cars is about selling people a sense of identity that they're they're part of progress without mm -hmm. any technical merit to it. Yeah, I agree with that. I think also that one must look at what are the emissions from the generation of said power. And last but not least, I do not believe those batteries are recyclable. Hey, no. I'm no recycling expert, but I, I don't know what recycle means when we're talking about all those car batteries. Well, not putting lithium yeah. ion into the ground, although I'm yeah. sure we'll recycle. But again, yeah. that takes energy. And without having free energy, without having a source of free energy, we're just yeah. compounding the problem. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. I yeah. certainly don't think electric cars are any worse. And like I've, I've got no. one that I've got my eye on. I just don't think they're – I don't think they're – I think they could be so much better than they are, I guess, is what so I'm saying. So much better. So, we need, we need yeah. the power source to be sold, both the battery and what fuels the battery, what, what, you know, what charging the battery. Now, the great thing about it, let's, because we're having a technology talk, the great thing about it is, like infrastructure, it allows you to decouple the problem in the right layer. That's yeah. what everyone agrees to, right? Like, once we got an electric fleet of vehicles, we can then replace the energy source from with whatever carbon we emitting to yeah. whatever pretty thing we come up with in the future. And but that is very valuable. We make the electricity and the better battery. I insist we got to have a better battery. It's just got to happen. Absolutely. It's got to happen. We yeah. need a lot of hydrogen. But you know what we need to make hydrogen? Energy. Yeah. Lots of non-carbon producing energy. Energy, yeah. at the end of, you know, I come from Venezuela, oil country. Right. I've seen what having this horrible dependency in one source of energy that comes out of the ground in certain places in the world creates. Yep. It is terrible for the world, destroys societies, destroys the planet. Like yep. the fact that we haven't put a priority, I don't give a rat's about going to the moon or going to Mars or going to Pluto, who cares? Yeah. Changing the energy source in this planet so we don't A, melt it down or kill ourselves trying to get more energy from other places Right. It would change the world. There would be no more geopolitical angst about where we get the next gigawatts of energy from. Yep. And we, are, we, are, we have now, we're finally putting billions of dollars of work on nuclear energy again, because yep. I think enough people have gotten convinced. But there's, there is hard decisions to be made around nuclear, and we yep. should be prepared to make them. It's one of the best available options. And I think to your totally. point, the, the more people we have, the more energy we need, especially since, I mean, everything's connected by electrical impulses at this point. I mean, we, the amount, I wonder, it would be interesting to see the statistics on before everyone had personal computers. So let's call that 1980, right? What was the total electrical use of the American population versus what is it now 42 years later? Oh, staggering. It's got to be exponentially and, higher. And so, I, I mean, the, the climate change problems that are happening, how are we going to solve them? With energy, more yeah. energy. Like, like if you don't have a hydroelectric plant because you don't have the water to do it, then you need right. to supplement with energy. If you need to pump water out of Seaport, where Nasuni has its office, because mm -hmm. the buildings are built 10 inches above sea level, how are those pumps going to be, you know, moving water is yeah. really expensive. Yeah. How are you going to irrigate? 
you know, when, when there's drought in the West, how are you going to irrigate all that, all those agricultural fields that feed us? You're yeah. going to have to somehow take the salt out of water because there's yeah. no water. So that takes energy. All of these things take massive, like our, our appetite for energy is just going to be as it's aggressive to be more than it yeah. has been. Yeah. Also. And on that happy note, hey, I know. <laughs> The pandemic is over. <laughs> That's right. It's endemic, they say. At least in California, I know they just changed the mask guidance, which we were kind of like leading the pack in restrictions. And then I think all of a sudden now we're trying to lead the pack and saying it's over. So, you know, I, you're the most tired. Yeah. You're Exhausted the most tired. would be the right word there. Yeah. So glad mm -hmm. to, uh, to finally be turning the corner on that thing. You know, that was a tough couple of years, especially for an extrovert like myself to have to stay home for two years was, that was a good test. Um, Hey, I really appreciate you Andres coming out and doing this and giving us a little bit of your Thursday. Uh, what do you got going on this weekend? It's great, Tom. Uh, this weekend, you know, I, because of the pandemic, I've actually been commuting between Boston and, and Vermont. So I come to Boston and then, we're starting to travel now, so it's great because you can go anywhere in the country. So I'll fly back to Vermont, where I have a I have a tiny little house uh, okay. by a mountain, and I'll just spend. You know, I am fortunate now at Masuni that I don't have day to day responsibilities with a lot of the just brutal kind of people management stuff. Mm -hmm. So it gives me a lot of time. I'm a big believer in thinking, just thinking hard about any issues you're trying to solve and they're technical issues that relate to the company but there are other issues that interest me and so i'll spend the you know i'll spend a lot of time i'll have i'll spend a lot of time by myself or i'll be helping the guy that runs a, a sugar uh, maple farm next oh, to wow. us yeah, he's got 350 trees yeah wow. we got to tap tap 350 trees and they're on a very steep slope so it's quite challenging. It's what I would call a young man's game. And I'm right. not a young enough man to be doing it, but I like the, I, it's a good challenge. You just, you just spend the whole day, you know, yeah. well, it helps, trees. Keep, helps keep you young, right? It did <laughs> or it kills you. One of the two. One of the two. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much. Always great to uh, catch up. I learned a bunch of cool stuff today and who knew you were a fellow uh, Michael Lewis fan. So shout out to Michael Lewis. All right. Definitely. Thanks Dude. a lot. And, um, have a great weekend. Thanks again for joining this week's episode of Fresh Tech Fridays. I'm your host, Tom Gilsonen. I want to thank Jason Johnson for composing our theme music, RSPE, and especially Russ for some help with engineering and equipment for the podcast. Molly Crone for helping me make this all possible in the undisputed podcast engineering champion, the mighty Jeff Rockland, engineering from afar in the South Bay. If you want to learn more about Jeff and all the different projects that he's working on, you can hit him on the web at jrocksgarage.com. J-R-O-C-K-S-garage.com. So make sure to check that out. Thanks again and look forward to seeing you next time.